Hey guys, welcome to the Acre Podcast. I'm Seth Jones. Our guest today is author Mark Van Light of Way to Emmaus. Quick uh, warning, uh, the conversation that we have goes through his life story and there is some sensitive content so you might want to wait until uh, you don't have the kiddos around to listen to this, but uh, it is one of the more fascinating life stories I've ever heard. So I hope you enjoy my conversation uh, with Mark Van Light. Okay, so you are uh, an author, a published author. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when did uh, when did Way to Emmaus actually get released? Uh, just about a month ago. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, it was I self published it, so I worked through a, a uh, and get that group. sorry get that mic like there you go. <laughs> I worked through a consulting group in Georgia to help me with the formatting and the graphics and that sort of thing. So. Okay. Um, and nowadays, uh, amazingly enough, you can really um, do the whole thing with Amazon and, and uh, publish books pretty much on your own. So, so is that the way it works? You just kind of go through Amazon? They do all the, the printing and the... Well, once the, once the formatted text is available to them in a PDF, then they take it from there. And wow. I can just uh, you know send them an order for one book or a thousand books, and they'll print them up and have them out the door the same day. Wow, that's so, crazy. Yeah, it's really amazing. That's crazy. <laughs> um, very cool. So you, how long have you been going to fellowship? Oh, a long time. I don't know. It's more like, I don't know, maybe seven years. Okay, like that. so pretty something seasoned like guy around yeah, the been fellowship. Yeah, a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, walk me through this. So what, what made you decide to write a book? What well, was the impetus okay. for that? Um, you know, I started, I started writing it about 10 years ago. Um, when I went through this really dramatic kind of transformation from a, a Buddhist monk uh, practicing in Asia to, uh, uh, I don't know what you call me now, a follower of Jesus. Okay, you're going to have to back up a little bit. Okay, so uh, <laughs> where, were you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. Okay. And I, I came from a, a very uh, uh, strict uh, authoritarian Lutheran family. My father was a Lutheran minister, and um, we were very uh, kind of reclusive. We were um, separated from the neighborhood. You know, we lived in this very kind of insulated bubble. Yeah. And uh, did y'all live in like a parsonage or something for the church? No, we didn't. Uh, the The house was was paid for by the congregation, but it wasn't a gotcha. parsonage. Gotcha. Gotcha. But um, it was a nice place. I remember. With great fondness, actually. Yeah. So, how <laughs> many were you? Uh, how many brothers and sisters do you have? Uh, two each. Okay. Oh, so you're one of five. Yep. Wow. I'm the youngest. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, you're going to have to walk me how you became a okay. Buddhist monk in Asia out of Milwaukee. Well, uh, it, you know, it, it's a little bit, there's, there's a, a long sequence of events that kind of uh, bring me to this place of being a monk. And uh, following that to being a Christian, uh, I moved uh, my fa- my mother and my father divorced. It was very acrimonious. Um, Dad was like not wanting to um, stop uh, having sexual relations. My mother was told by the doctor that she couldn't have another baby, and uh, you know. Uh, birth control was not considered appropriate 
How old were you at this time? Um, I was just a little guy. I was like four or five when that happened. Yeah. So uh, my mother's, you know, as you can imagine, struggled mightily with five kids. She was a school teacher, taught second grade for like, I don't know, 35 years or something like that. Wow. And um, she got to the point where she was having like a mental breakdown when I was about nine. And I got shunted off to a, a relative and lived there for a while. So uh, uh, the next year after that, um, she found a summer job in Huntsville, Alabama through a friend of hers. So we came Your mom down. did? Yeah. Okay. S- uh, teaching speed reading. Okay. That was really hot back then. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I took the course. I was, like, really good at speed reading for yeah. a while. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Not really very useful, though. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, we went down there, and while we were down there, we met, I say we, the family uh, together met this guy who was very interested in our family and uh, wanted to become a part of it. And in a matter of, I don't know, like less than a month, um, my my mom married him. In less than a month. Yeah. So, like, we met him one weekend. He proposed the next weekend. Oh, my God. She decided the next weekend, and we got married the next weekend. So, all That's of a crazy. sudden. Yeah. So, all You're of a sudden. nine or ten? I was or? ten, yeah. Well, as it turned out, this guy was a serial pedophile. Oh, and wow. uh, really, uh, really out there, psychotic guy. I mean, he ended up. Uh, killing himself in prison many years later, hung himself in his prison cell after he was convicted of first-degree murder of a priest, bludgeoned murder, burned his body in the forest. This and, guy was your stepdad? Yeah, and he, he he did that over a street kid that he and the priest were fighting over. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, it was really kind of a, really the heart of darkness for <laughs> a little guy who was you know, totally wet behind the ears. I mean, yeah. we lived in a, in a, uh, environment that was just so carefully regulated, uh, in those early years. And then out of that just exploded this darkness. And, um, it was very difficult to understand how that initial contract I'd kind of worked out with God, you know, how this fit into that. Because I thought I was doing okay. You know, I was probably like most little Christian kids, you know, I made a deal. I promise I'll be good. Right. And uh, you'll be good to me, right? You'll right. be a good daddy. And uh, you'll take care of me. And it's kind of like, you know, you do that, I'll do this. Yeah. And it clearly wasn't working out that way. Right. And I got to the point where I was pretty, I was a pretty bright kid. And, uh, I saw around me much more of a secular world when when we were living in Alabama. And I realized that, you know, actually one of two things was going on. Either there was no such thing as God. It was just this cruel joke. And this was a summer job, though, that your mom took? Yeah, and then we moved down there. Okay, so it ultimately turned into staying down there. It's turned into five years down there, yeah. Was she with that guy for five years? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And um, he predated on my my, uh, brother and I. My three oldest sibs were either 
almost were out of the house or almost out of the house. My oldest brother was in the Navy, and uh, my middle sister, Mary, who goes to Germantown now, is, mm. lives in Collierville, um, was uh, almost ready to leave high school. Yeah. So it was really the two boys who he was interested in. And so he started predating on us both independently of each other. And we were both so, you know, uh, psychically, emotionally, intellectually overwhelmed by the experience that we weren't able to talk to each other. We didn't tell anybody else. I mean, it was years later was when I told the first person that this had even happened. What's years? How long? Well, it was... uh, I was 16 when I told uh, a girl in high school about it. Wow. So we were we were both going through this really hellish experience, and he was very unstable, so very jealous, and um, he'd, he'd, like, really blow up and have these huge destructive fights. He'd throw us around. He threw, threw weapons, threw knives and stuff. Um, it was pretty, it was very he scary. It was crazy. It was really scary. Yeah. yeah, it was really bad. And there was actually one point when um, he chased me down the street and I, I, you know, knocked on a lady's door. I knew an old lady, Grandma Thornton, we used to call her. Yeah. She lived down the street and I, I just begged her to say, please help me. I need help. And so she called social services and I still remember very clearly the the two social workers came from the state and they come into this, you know, pretty nice house and there's a dad and a mom and everybody's kind of, you know, seemingly okay. We were pretty well behaved and um and they they were skeptical and they just asked me, "Do I want to leave?" and I was like, "Well, no, I don't I guess not." Hmm. And that was the end of that. Wow. So we went back into the, the darkness. What, what, how was your mom doing in all this? I mean, was she? She checked out. Okay. She was, she was uh, pretty overwhelmed when she met him. And his behavior was, he was 25 and she was 50. So. Oh, my gosh. Like, this was just kind of cobbled together out of thin air. It was a desperate attempt by her to gain some stability and it, of course it backfired but it was not something that she could handle so yeah. she was kind of out of it Jeez. and i felt like you know god god didn't exist or he wouldn't have allowed this or the other thing that was possible i pondered this and i really kind of chewed on it back and forth maybe he was real and you know everything that i had been taught as a child was right except for some reason he really hated me and so he was out to get me and of course he had all the cards right so all i could do was just flee so i i decided you know looking back on it now i'm not sure which one i actually chose as my as my uh engine at first but later on it was just denialism you know i I, there is no such thing as God. It's superstition. And I I worked through uh, uh, an intellectual construct of the world sure. that excluded yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> so. And th- how old were you when you I, went through that? I was 14. So I, was 14. I finished my confirmation classes for my mom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Check that off the list. <laughs> and got my white Because in all, the, all this, that's still on. important. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got my white robe, got my picture taken, shaking the pastor's yeah. hand. So you're you know? good. 
You're good. <laughs> and I said, no more. I'm never going to church again. Yeah. <laughs> and for 40 years, I didn't. Wow. Yeah. So, so you, didn't, you didn't step back into a church till you were in your 50s? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what? So 14, you're done. With. I was done. I walked away from it and just saw it as a, as a horrible misadventure, the whole thing. And, of course, you can, you can imagine this was 1967. So right. this was right in the middle of the summer of love and rock and roll and um, Martin Luther King and the war in Vietnam. And uh, uh, I just it was totally, a wild time. Yeah, I totally identified with counterculture. Yeah. And my my politics swung sharply to the left. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I finished high school, but uh, only barely. I really wasn't interested. I, I thought that civilization was a really bad scam. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, and and this was also the beginning of the environmental movement. So I got really into environmentalism, and and again, looking back now, I can say that was my god. Yeah, Gaia. You're trying to grab Mother onto Earth. something. Right. Yes, and and that's what I thought of as as being the foundation for my existence. Was so what did that look like? I mean. Uh, you know, in a real way, yeah. did that become sort of like a religion for you? Yeah. In it, a sense? It, yeah. Uh-huh. It, it, it wasn't like an object of worship so much as an object of service. Right. And so I, I became a tree planter. I moved out to Oregon, and I bought a school bus and tore out the— Right when you graduated high school? Mm-hmm. So yep. you just went out to Oregon and— I just went out and hitchhiked out there and— You and hitchhiked to Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> and I lived in a school bus for like five years. Whose school bus? It was my school bus. I bought it. It was uh, of course you did <laughs> an old North Dakota school district bus that uh, uh, another hippie in Oregon had had uh, purchased and uh, brought another some. hippie. D so would you designate yourself a hippie at this yeah. point? Okay. Yeah. Got definitely. it. Definitely. Got it. Yeah, I was definitely a hippie. Awesome. <laughs> so, I should show you. Well, you can see some pictures in there. Yeah, book. yeah, I, I did notice some There's of those some pictures. <laughs> so, yeah, so I was a tree planter and uh, planted about seventy-five thousand trees over my short. So career. that's a job. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of trees going down out there. Right. So, and and they so be somebody's got to <laughs> put them back in the ground, right? Right. So that's what we did, and it was uh, you know a. a Lots of like illegal immigrant crews and crews of drunk dishwashers and you know yeah it was like the lower end of society and then there was us all these kind of uh, bright-eyed idealistic hippies middle class people from the Midwest <laughs> largely right <laughs> ironically <laughs> putting trees yeah. in right yeah so that for a while was very wonderful I loved that time how long did that last that lasted about five years. Okay. Five years. So you were planting trees for five years. You planted seventy five thousand trees. Yeah, a lot of trees. Yeah, that's that's actually pretty cool. Yeah, I, you know, and that was a <laughs> long time ago. Now that was in the in the mid seventies. So I I think back now that's forty years. And actually, they say that in the Coast Range, forty years is about the life cycle to the first commercial thin. So commercial what? Commercial thinning. That's like, uh, you know, when they have when you change a, a climax forest to a tree farm, everything is uh, got the same age. All the trees are the same age. Right. So they all grow up, 
and there's some pre-commercial thinning to kind of clear them, clear out the foliage around the bases to allow them to grow faster. Yeah. But then the first commercial thinning is at about the 40-year mark. So there's probably people out there cutting down my trees right now. Wow. <laughs> It's kind of crazy to think about. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but I, I'm happy to think of that, that as my legacy. <laughs> did, so when you went out to Oregon, did you have good relationships with your family? No. My my family just thought I was crazy. And okay. I was. I mean, yeah. in, in a lot of ways, I was pretty crazy. I was I was suffering from, from what I now know was they call PTSD. Uh, you right, know, lots yeah. of... Um, I'm sure you were. Yeah, intense sweating and... Uh, extreme uh, uh, nervousness and fear around people. So I would isolate myself. And that's why tree planting was so nice because I could get live your in own woods. world. Yeah. Yeah. So right. that was really nice. So what happened to bring you out of that situation? Uh, I just slowly, you know, as time went on, I would go dro- drive into town, into Eugene, more and more often, and I began to um, have a relationship with a lady, and uh, it was like, well, I think I want to do something that's more in town. And I've always had, uh, you know, I like to read, and that whole the world of the intellect I enjoy. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to go to school. And so I, I moved into Eugene. I For a while, I was a auto mechanic, Worked in a, in a commune uh, auto mechanic shop, and then I was the business manager there for a while and became a landscaper. In a hippie commune? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then um, I did landscaping for a couple of years, went to community college, and then just um, my, at that point, my wife decided she wanted to go to, to college. She already had a degree. When did you get married? Got married in uh, 1980. Okay, so, so while you were planting time, trees? No, it was it was after the end of planting trees. Okay. I started planting trees, I think, in 72 or 73, graduated in 71. Okay. So, yeah. So by the end of the 70s, it was, um, I was pretty much living in town. There was a period there where I went to work for the Forest Service and was doing um, uh, wilderness area guarding Mm-hmm. You know, like basically just touring the wilderness yeah. area and uh, driving around to disperse sites and and uh, making contact with visitors and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and that was out further. That was back kind of in the woods again. I lived in a, yeah. a little house in the woods during that time. But I decided to go to school. Sounds very romantic. Yeah. It was, that's what I was doing. I was living a romance. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's really fun to to uh, play act at life, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a while, right? Yeah, but it always loses its flavor unless it's always. authentic in some way. Yeah. So, and this, you know, at the time I thought it was, but you know, there was a part of me that I can recognize quite easily now that was submerged at that time that really wasn't being fed, and uh, you know. So you got married. Did- I mean, are you isolated from your family to the point where did they come to your wedding? Were they part of any of that? Uh, yeah, they they did come to my wedding. But they still thought yeah. you were crazy. Yeah. 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 Well, I I mean, you can see some of the pictures in my book again. I was pretty wild looking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I had really big hair uh-huh. and, uh, you know, a beard. And uh, I wore clothes that they wouldn't 
imagine wearing. My brother's right. an engineer. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, got it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a little bit odd, but... No, I think there was enough uh, 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 sibling love and, and uh, you know, all of us were pretty bombed out, but we also really cared about each other. Yeah. And there was love in our home as a child. There, there was definitely love there. It just was very conditional on mm. proper behavior and yeah. correct attitudes and very authoritarian love. So where is your birth father in all this? Where, like... Dad, uh, after the divorce, he was he was actually there was a there was a a um, a battle of of psychologists at the divorce, and uh, the judge went with a psychologist my mom hired, saying that there were there were psychological problems that made him an unfit dad, and he was a very very conservative Christian, but uh, you know when you read. When you do a careful reading of the Bible, a lot of what he was, what was considered very extreme views are actually kind of what the Bible says hmm. a lot of times. So, I mean, he had, he had a very rigid take on it. Right. And, uh, you know, I think when you, when you study the Bible, you have to, you have to think in a context and always hold kind of the the love of Christ and and his request that we his command that we serve and that we heal and that we love and care about the people around us and that part was missing it was much more you know he is a fiery god he's holding us by one toe yeah. over the flames of hell and uh you better get it together buddy or you're yeah. going to be you know roasted right <laughs> Right. So, so he was he was a little bit out there too. He he was very uh, uh, he he had lots of like headaches as he studied the Bible and lots of angst. Did you ever see him? I didn't for like twenty years. And actually, when I hitchhiked out to Oregon, he was living in Coos Bay, on the coast. Uh, he had Where's remarried. Coos Bay? Coos Bay is on the coast in South Central Oregon. Oh, okay. Uh, South Central, uh, you know, of the coastline. Interesting. Okay. And um, it's a nice place. Yeah. It is. Pacific Ocean's right there. I'm sure it is. And uh, he just lived a couple miles from the, from the ocean and had remarried. And I uh, had a very kind of uh, quiet life. He had a little church and um, continued to, to pastor that church. But um, he, he wrote long letters that had... Probably at least dozens and maybe hundreds of Bible quotes. Wow. Uh, single space typed, yeah, to everybody okay. in our family. I was in a really good position vis-a-vis those because I said I didn't believe any of it. And he said, well, this is what the Bible teaches. And I said, well, what's the Bible? It's right. A, yeah. It's a book made by people, right? I mean, that doesn't have any divine ring to me that's just you know another author out there right and um so he was he was going back to square one in first principles with me but with the other kids there were divisions i mean just as a and as an example he actually excommunicated my mother and my grandmother or excuse me my my mother my oldest brother for praying with 
my grandmother, who was from a different synodical conference in the Lutheran Church. So we were okay. Wisconsin Synod. She was Missouri Synod. And they, he, they, he excommunicated them because they refused to not pray with the different conference. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's how he fell. He was, yeah. you know, Martin Serious Luther business. writ large. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. He had a bust of Martin Luther in his study. And, yeah. You know, that course. was like, you know, handsome devil. Here I stand. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so you got married. You started doing what? What was it after the tree service or tree planting? Uh, well, eventually, I got to college. Okay. And I just, I just got a degree in history. I loved uh, a Protestant intellectual history american history is is what i focused on and uh, after i i finished school i had no idea what i was going to do so i just went on to law school because it sounded fun sure and uh, (laughs) i went to berkeley there because it was really cheap and um and it was uh, you know a good school in oregon excellent rating no that was down in in berkeley california got it so is that close to san francisco yeah just across the bay okay yeah that was cheap yeah. Wow. Yeah. In fact, you know, that law school was in the top 2% in terms of status or, you know, yeah. in, in U.S. News and World Reports, you know. So you, you're a hippie turned attorney. I turned attorney. Right. <laughs> and it's in the bottom 2% in terms of cost. Oh, so it was so, a no-brainer. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So I went there, and, and I graduated. It wasn't as much fun as I thought it would be. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I became a public defender, and I represented kids. I, Betsy and I just uh, kind of thought about where we wanted to, to live, and we, we wanted a lot of diversity. We wanted to be in a poor community, and so we chose Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we moved there. <laughs> and uh, I became a public defender. That's where I. That's the only place I applied for a job. And uh, I represented kids uh, in the juvenile court there for ten years, four thousand cases. What was that like? That was really uh, intense. It was, yeah, you know, lots of, um, of difficult stories that were similar to mine, and so I, I felt quite at home actually in terms of the, the emotional wreckage that was often you know exposed in the courtroom, and I could. I had kind of a kinship with that, so I felt comfortable there. Yeah. And um, I felt like I was doing something that was a service, you know, that helped people. And uh, and that was good. Yeah. But it did reach a point where I started flagging. I got burned out, basically, because yeah. it was just so 4,000 cases will do that. That's a lot of cases. That yeah. was right during the... The crack explosion in the like early nineties. Well, and you so did that for ten years. I did that for ten years. So you're yeah. doing four hundred cases a year. Well, actually, I was just going to say I did eight hundred cases for a couple of years in that time because so you're was just a in big court expansion. all the time. Yeah, big expansion of the prosecution, but not the same amount of money to the defense. Yeah. So we were just totally overwhelmed with cases. Yeah. Is that still the case? With just the whole public defender, yeah, I think the average, the ABA says the average is around three or four hundred cases a year. That is unbelievable. So that's still a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. But you got to remember that a lot of those too, for kids at least, were, um, you know, maybe, maybe a third of them 
I'm just guessing, but a third or so would be cases that could be sewn up pretty quick that were just, yeah, you did this. You know, they're asking you to do this. Yeah. Let's do it. You know, I'll sign here. Yeah. I'll see if I can get something a little better than this, but this is what's going to happen. And yeah. So, but there were murderers and rapists and, you know, all the usual felonies, gang violence. Yeah. So So when, how old were you when you moved to Albuquerque? I was 38. 38. So you did that till you were about 48? Uh Uh-huh. So then what happened? Well, I was, I, I had been reading about Buddhism for many years. I, in the early eighties, I started going to meditation retreats, these kind of 10 day, completely silent retreats where you just sit for 45 minutes or so, then walk very slowly for another 45 minutes and just do that straight through the day with breaks for meals. And that was it. And I just found that to be uh, wonderfully challenging. Sure. Yeah. Very difficult. And at the same time, I felt a lot of peace coming from that. And um, it seemed like that was the deepest kind of heart work that I was capable of doing. That yeah. it, was a, it was a tool that would allow me to, to see deeper into who I was. Yeah. And I was also very enamored with the whole idea of Buddhist psychology and its its worldview. And, you know, unlike Christianity, and Christianity really isn't a psychological worldview. Like, it's not a system, you know? Yeah. yeah. Whereas uh, Buddhism really is. It's got this wonderful kind of coherent philosophy that if you buy into is self-referencing and... And uh, elegant. I mean, it's beautiful. Do you think you were drawn to Buddhism because it wasn't it wasn't making a case that there's a God that's in control? Yeah, absolutely. It was more about you personally uh-huh. understanding your way to peace. Yeah, yeah, totally. I was. That's re- really insightful. I I looked at at the Buddha, and all he was saying to me was, "I'm a historical figure." Come and see if this works for you. Yeah. Wasn't making any sort of claims that no God he's controlling or no, no, he's responsible for anything that's happened to you in the past or, but that was American Buddhism. Actually, after a certain point, after I gave up on being a lawyer, I went into Buddhist meditation full time here in the States. Wait, how is that a thing? I mean, well, well, it's not, it's not that easy to do actually, (laughs) but there was a retreat center in Massachusetts still there called Insight Meditation Society, IMS. In Massachusetts? Yeah. So you booked out of Albuquerque, went up to Massachusetts yep. to be a full-time Buddhist monk. Well, I wasn't a monk there. I was just a practitioner. Because you got to graduate to monk? Well, no, it's just not. Monks are kind of, you know, Buddhist religion. Yeah. It's where you wear robes and, right. you know, like, it's different. This is just, you know, you got your shorts and your T-shirt and your Birkenstocks and that's it. You know, you just go in and you sit. You're a normal human, normal American. But I, I was able to wangle out a special deal where I could stay there nonstop for a so year and a half. moved to Massachusetts. Yeah. So your wife was cool with this? Well, she she came along. She was interested too. Okay. But she Did you have kids? Of, no kids. Okay. No, I didn't want kids. Got it. Because I, I didn't know what I would do. Yeah. I was afraid. Yeah. Totally understandable. Yeah. So um, I, I really, the more I did it, the more I wanted to do it. Whereas 
Betsy was like, well, that was that was cool. Now I'd like to go back. And she had she had become an academic and, and was uh, working at the University of New Mexico okay. in uh, allied health sciences. She was uh, an occupational therapist. OK. And uh, she chaired that department, actually, for many years wow. after after this. Wow. Um, but I, I just wanted to keep doing it. And to me, it was one of the most uh, profoundly disruptive exercises I'd ever experienced. It was a challenge beyond anything I'd ever attempted to do in the past. And I loved that. That was just great because I felt like, well, if I can just sit with this torrent of pain and uh, emptiness and nonstop movie making and all of this long enough, I'll be able to see through into the emptiness at the foundation of reality Wow! and become one with it. And I really thought I'd be enlightened pretty quick, actually. Yeah. Well, how isn't it like a, don't they say it takes a really long time to reach enlightenment? Well, yeah, but you know, if you're really smart and you really work hard, maybe it would be quicker. Okay. Anyway. Okay. If you can really get on the track and hit some sprints. So that's really why I went on to become a monk after being a, a, a Buddhist practitioner. So you while. did become a monk. Yeah, I wanted to see what living in a Buddhist culture was like. Because in America, this was like a science. You know, this was like... Um, you know, like exercise or something like that. It's just... Can you be a married monk? Uh, no, actually you can't. So what well, happened? You know, I decided to become a monk because I could do this nonstop for free, basically. Yeah. So I moved to Thailand and I, I joined an international um, um, meditation center that actually had... had uh, Everybody from Commonwealth nations all over the world were, was in that uh, that community, and I remained married. And I, you know, regularly wrote back and forth. So she's back my, here in the states. She's back in New Mexico. Yeah, and then she said, "I want to buy a house, but I can't buy a house unless you're here." And so I want a divorce so that I can buy the house. Okay. And I said, "Well, I don't really want to have a divorce, but I guess since I'm not being a husband, there's, you know." I don't really, I'll acquiesce to your wishes. So we we did a a, a, a weird legal divorce because there's the the two legal systems are completely non conjoining. Right. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine. <laughs> so it's like I signed some papers and uh, you know I had a, a Thai judge kind of say, yeah, that was the the man who who has an ID that says Mark Van Light on it. So yeah. must be the right guy. Because I was known as Tan Satimanto, and I didn't have any hair, no Is this eyebrows. you on the cover? It could be. It's not, actually. Okay. But uh, I actually practiced in this monastery. This is from a Western Australian monastery. And uh, that's really how I look. That's the color of my robes, and that's the way I folded them. And so this is a for those who are listening, it's like a... It's like a almost like a darker orange than University of Texas, like a burnt dark orange robe. Burnt umber, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um so this is what you would wear every day. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. That so how long, how long were you there? Well, I, I was in Thailand for three and a half years, and then I went uh, to Western Australia for a year, very similar conditions. But Why'd you go there? I mean, like, what would be the reason to go to a different spot? I went to there uh, because there was a teacher who headed the monastery in Western Australia that I was very attracted to. The man had uh, a very uh, fun-loving worldview, and his his view of Buddhism was... Uh, uh, very well integrated into kind of the the hippie worldview, hmm. and so I, I I appreciated that. Yeah. Uh, but as I practiced, there were some really important things I found out. It was really a good idea, as it turned out, to go to a Buddhist country because I began to realize that there's really huge underlying benefits in Western culture to coming from its Christian roots. Hmm. that are not evident in Asia. The Buddhist culture is really different from, like, American culture or Western yeah, culture, sure as you know it. And uh, it, it's it's based more on the idea that, you know, karma is what, what rules the universe, mm-hmm. and whatever uh, causes you've created through your behavior over many lifetimes, those effects are unfolding all around you and through you. And there really isn't a whole lot that you can do um, except stop doing. And so the the idea in in Thailand was, you know, to get off the round of of birth and death, there's only one thing you can do. And it's like think of an LP record that you just endless music over and over and over, round and round you go. But the less you do, the less kind of karmic... uh, uh, effluences that you have the results of life in terms of karma uh, reduce themselves so if you are a specialist in non-action you actually end up stopping the karmic flow so the idea is that is that the goal well, you know, that's exactly the way I looked when I realized that. Yeah. Wait a minute. You know, that means extinction is right. the goal, right? <laughs> right. Well, so is the goal to just not exist anymore? Yeah, well, actually, yeah. I mean, you know, you wouldn't you'd never hear an American Buddhist say that. But really at the core of of Theravadan, the Southern School Buddhist teaching, which is the original teaching of the Buddha, uh-huh. Theravadan Buddhism, it's also called. The, at the core of that is the idea that non-action leads to emptiness, which leads to extinction of the individual. And well, if you were kind of over in Thailand, in uh, Western Burma or India, you might say, well, you know, you're going to fall in, your, your being will fall into a sea of love, and by your efforts, you will have increased the, the ocean of love by three drops, you know, and that would be your contribution. So but you're stuck on this record. Traditional Buddhism, no, no, there's no sea of love. There's emptiness. Is that what you're trying period. to get to? Yes. You're trying to get to the emptiness. In Southern School, which is not a very popular school. I would me. think not. There's like 150 <laughs> million people in the Northern School which believe that Buddha is a real ex- presently existing figure who lives in Tavitimsa heaven. It's like the seventh level of heaven. And that if you really have faith in him and repeat a phrase or do various 
practices, depending on what culture you're from. Uh, you will be joining him for one last lifetime in Tavi Timsa heaven, and then off to Parinibbana or, or ultimate Nirvana, which is again extinction. But at least you have time to spend with him. Hold on, hold on, hold on. He said ultimate Nirvana, which is you just blew it off <laughs> again. Extinction. <laughs> You know, and doggone it, you know, the, the, the practice of, of, of meditation, this is really important for me. Is I, I realized that, you know, this is hard work. You know, in the middle of the jungle, it's really hot. You know, sweat's rolling off your body and, and bugs and snakes and, you know, all kinds of nasties. And um, what I found was that it was way easier if I cultivated faith in the Buddha. Like all of a sudden, Interesting. all of a sudden my practice was really moist and, and alive, passionate. Yes. Yeah. And I could say, glorify you, Buddha, Buddha. And by doing that, man, my, my practice deepened and, and it was really a powerful thing. So, uh, for a while that really kept me going. Well, and a whole series of things, kind of physical things intervened. I probably could have still been there, except that I got very ill, almost died from clots. Wow. And this Down in happened. Australia? Yeah, first time in Australia. Second time, I moved to a, a, a monastery in Northern California from the same lineage. And that's still there. It's in Ukiah, or near Ukiah. Wow. Red, Redwood uh, Valley, I think it's called. Um, How does that... I'm just curious. If you go to one of these monasteries to be a monk... How are they funded? I mean, you just work the land, they own it, so you eat off the land. Is it kind of like no, one of those things? No, it's all, it's all, uh, that's what really a beautiful thing about it is that, no, there's absolutely no money held, uh, maybe in trust by some trustees from the, from the uh, management of the monastery. But as far as the actual boots on the ground, everybody did not touch money. It was a serious offense to touch money. If you found money laying in the in the jungle, there was a particular thing you should do to go to a precipice somewhere and throw it over your shoulder to try to get rid of it because wow. it was the root of all evil, basically. So, so the, how the they... way that you lived was through the generosity of the lay supporters around you. So every morning at dawn, I would strap on my bowl, which was the only possession I had other than my robes. Your bowl? My bowl. It's a okay. metal bowl, you know, that big. Okay. And I'd carry that. I'd walk barefoot out into the... About the size of a pumpkin. Exactly. Okay. Yes. And uh, I'd walk to the nearest um, village... And in an ancient tradition that's been handed down for thousands of years, these uh, people would all be, you know, kneeling on the side of the road uh, in front of their homes, uh, and they would hold up their offerings above their head as they bow. Now, these were Buddhists. These were all lay Buddhists. Gotcha. Yeah. They, okay. were, they were rice farmers. Gotcha. And okay. so they'd have a little a bowl of sticky rice. Uh, they, one time I got during the, at the queen's birthday, I've got a, uh, 115 Oreo cookies, but just whatever people want to give you, that's what you eat. So they'll give Crazy. you rice. They'll give you a cake. You know, they'll give you a chicken breast. 
Uh, they'll give you, uh, in, at one time I, I had a, a bag full of stewed grass. Another time I had um, lizard. Okay. Got really sick from that one. Yeah, you might do that. But that's, Wait, what, that's how I lived for years. Even in Northern on, California, is that how it's supported? Mm-hmm, yeah. They walk through the streets, they get a whatever. A little different, but that's, we did that once a week. And it was a little more kind of complex. Like people would bring in food to the monastery. And we had a kitchen and lay cooks would. It was more systemized. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. But the, the essentially the idea was the same. Wow. So I had yeah. no idea that was the way that they. Yeah, it's, it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful tradition where, you know, people can, if they really want to pursue this kind of higher path, uh, the lay supporters are like, you go for it. We'll, we're, we're there for you. 100%. Wow. It's cool. That is that's that's yeah. so uh, intriguing. Yeah, it's it's uh, it would be wonderful if we could do that here. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the things I miss about it. Okay, so how long were you in Australia then? I was there for a year. So just a quick year, and then you. Then I went for a year at, in the monastery in Northern California, but again, I was very ill. I almost died both times. Both from clots. Both from clots. Okay. Yeah, and. Um, I knew that I needed to be, or I felt like I needed to be near a, a Western medical system that had some way of dealing with this stuff. Yeah. Like I got on warfarin and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And Blood uh, thinner, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Although now I'm, I, that's failed as well. So now I have to actually inject myself with this stuff made from pig intestines. Are you, um, so you're still dealing with that sickness? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. Just had another episode six months ago. Jeez. Yeah. What does it mean to have an episode? I had a bunch of clots in my lungs, and uh, uh, one side of my diaphragm is paralyzed now. Not really sure why. So I continue to have breathing problems. That's why I have this uh, breathing tube that I'm using right now. Yeah. Yeah. So. Do they know what causes that, or just? Actually, no. There's uh, there's like around 250 possible explanations when one yeah. doctor told me. So, <laughs> so they're narrowing it down. Yeah. Right. <laughs> wow. So, that's insane. Yeah. So I was getting really super sick. And the second time, the doctor in Ukiah said. What, what are the symptoms, though? When you say you're super sick, are you just uh, super tired? Like, oh, boy. Yeah. I've got to lay down. So you yeah. lay down and like, ooh, I can't really even get up. And yeah. Lost a lot of energy. Um that sounds miserable. I kind of thought I had a heart attack one time because it was that. I got really, really sick with pneumonia that was, um, you know, that went its course for a long time before I got into some, into the hospital and got some antibiotics. So I got very yeah. sick from that. And um, the last time it was just on a, on a flight um, um, back from a um, family reunion, which I haven't told you about, in Alaska. I was coming back to San Francisco. Who's in Alaska? Wait, hold on. My family was in Alaska. I had a lot of family up in Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. You're the most geographically diverse human I have. It's yeah. I've been around. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) the the you know I couldn't I couldn't uh, actually just walk from uh, one gate to the next gate in my in my intervening flight, which I think was in. Salt Lake City, if I recall. I couldn't do it. I had to sit and, like, get my energy together, and then I'd push for another, like, 100 feet or so and sit again. Jeez, wow. And so by the time I got back to San Francisco, I just went right into the hospital. Yeah. And uh, Back from Alaska? Yeah. But while I was in Alaska, 
I had this very unnerving experience where I met my family again for the first time after, oh, six to ten years, depending on who we're talking about. Wow. And doggone, if it wasn't spiritual fruits, <laughs> in my opinion, I mean, just my perception, were all over the place with these guys. So I was seeing people who were deeply connected to themselves and knew how to love and were loved and served the communities in which they were in and a deep sense of of uh, connection with them was a uh, uh, unexpected yeah, yeah it was very unexpected and and so that really kind of threw me a little bit off my foundations and so uh, what <laughs> started thinking about well how is it possible that these people who've been christians their whole lives could be showing similar spiritual fruit to monks who are out in the jungle meditating. Was that the first, I mean, you're deep into Buddhism at this point. Yeah. Was that the first sort of kind of tremor to that world? It sure was. It was my family and, and they, uh, they welcomed me with open arms. Wow. Yeah. It was really cool. That gotta be powerful. It was very powerful. It really was. It, it it was one of the peak experiences of my life. Honestly, I look back on it now and that was the moment when I began to feel like there was a home I could come back home to. Oh, wow. That's powerful. Yeah. It was really beautiful. And, uh, I started getting curious and I I was the librarian. And so I had for the monastery. Yeah. So I'd read, everything about Theravadan Buddhism, everything I could get my hands on about uh, uh, Northern School, Mahayana Buddhism, and uh, all the other Eastern religions. And so I started reading about Christianity, uh, which I hadn't done in many, many years. And um, I wanted to read a Bible. I got got a hold of some tapes of Martin Luther King's speeches Mm -hmm. that were in the library. And I listened to those, and they were like, yeah, you know, right on. (laughs) It was like perfect. <laughs> Interesting. I'm with this guy, and uh, and he he didn't. I mean, he he went to uh, visit Gandhi and and incorporated nonviolence into his worldview through Gandhi. Yep. So there was that kind of Eastern religion connection there. But what year is this? This the, is like you're uh, listening to these tapes. This is like 2005. Okay. Yeah. So 12, 12 years, years ago. ago. Not that long ago. No, actually. Not at all. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that started me really thinking. So finally, I had to rag on my brother, but finally he, he sent me a Bible, and I started reading regularly. And, and in my little hut out there in the woods, I just started to get a stronger and stronger attraction to the Word and to uh, the idea of embodying the ideals of Jesus. And um, what were you what did you start somewhere in the Bible? Did you say I'll just open a Genesis or what, what did you, know, you do? Actually, I started from from um, um, I, I read Ecclesiastes first. Yeah. OK. And uh, Ecclesiastes. Why'd you go there? It's just straight up Buddhism. I mean, it's totally <laughs> right. straight up. Buddhism. Yeah. There's nothing different between, you know, Solomon saying I I have done it all and it is it's all, all meaningless just in the wind. <laughs> right. You know, and that's that's really what Buddhism. That's the first step in Buddhist thinking is that the world as we know it is is an illusion. It's it's worthless. It's it's has nothing of worth to carry you into whatever comes after this. Yeah. And, um, yeah, Ecclesiastes whew, knocked me off my socks. 
And, um, and then I, I followed through. I remember uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, Those stories even, from you know, your childhood. And, yeah, yeah. And, and this was from Martin Luther King, you know, one of his uh, sermons about, you know, yeah, okay, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, it, it, you, could, you could kill us, but, uh, you know, our God is stronger than you, and our God could save us. And even if he doesn't, we're not going to follow your God. <laughs> that that level of faith yeah. was so powerful. And then, you know, seeing the extra person in the furnace right. and all yeah. that stuff was so cool. <laughs> what a great story that is. <laughs> I love it. And then there was, um, oh, I remember there was some, some things from Mark that also I was attracted to. But um, so you're just kind of skipping around, and uh, yeah. And I read the Gospels, and uh, you know the Gospels really, uh, John especially, uh, they're just really beautiful, right? And there's such profundity. I mean, just oh, mainline profundity, and it, it wasn't something that I felt averse to in the least. In fact, it was almost like when I first started understanding what Buddhism was, I was hungry for more. Yeah, and so I kept reading more and more, and uh, and then I got really sick again. <laughs> I was in the hospital again, and I talked to my brother John, who goes to Collierville First Baptist now. He's over here. In oh Collierville. wow, okay. And I said, John, I'm laying under the bed actually in my robes. I said, John, I don't know which end is up anymore. I don't. I don't believe that I really know anything <laughs> that I can hang on to, and. I've been reading the Bible and Jesus and an understanding of what that means to be a Jesus follower more than anything else in the world. Yeah. For whatever reason connects in a way that nothing else does. And he he was like, "Well, would you like to become a Christian? You know, would you like to just pray with me and on the phone. On the phone." Yeah. And I said, "Yeah." <laughs> so I did. And wow. here I am. So what was the process like? I mean, uh, <laughs> coming out of the monastery. <laughs> That's a really good question. It was really weird. I yeah. mean, I didn't have anything. I'd given away. I had like hundreds of thousands of dollars. I had, I had a really good bank account. And I'd given that all away. So I had nothing, no clothes, nothing. And so I came here to Memphis because this is where my brother lived. And, you know, he took me to Walmart and got me a Timex and, you know, some blue jeans and a shirt. And I got some shoes at Kohl's and, you know, got it. You were starting from absolute scratch. Absolute zero, yeah. And, you know, my brother was a very successful industrial engineer, and he was a, a corporate executive for most of his career. So he has a lot of money. Yeah. And he was living in this palatial to my eyes utterly palatial mansion these you know new lexus cars and all of this and i had nothing yeah and i couldn't even find a job you know so i did i spent a little while in memphis and i went up to fairbanks where uh, a a bunch of family lives and uh and i lived where's fairbanks it's in the right in the middle of alaska okay and I lived in a in an old uh, farmhouse uh, by myself with this incredible view of the Alaska Range. And I lived there for about a year and a half. And I taught school at a Christian school there. Interesting. Taught third okay. grade. 
history or no third grade is just whatever it's like <laughs> math science yeah it's all in there stop yeah. puking right yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, yeah so um i came back down to to memphis because i felt just like it was kind of like a dead end i was living just hand to mouth getting 600 a month for being a teacher and nothing much happening there the winters are long and dark and 20 below zero is the average temperature so wow like i locked myself out one night accidentally in my in my pjs and you know 20 below i had to break the door down <laughs> in oh order my to gosh. survive yeah. you know? <laughs> i was like nah this is like what about memphis with all those beautiful trees <laughs> well maybe i'll go back there <laughs> so, so you came back so i came back and i could not find work i got a suit and a briefcase and a laptop and that did not help at all and so i ended up working at burger king we're right over down there at poplar in Collierville. i worked at burger king and went home every night to this beautiful home and um so you're living with your brother yeah okay. none of it was mine and i felt kind of like a failure and you know i i i had the the my faith which was, if anything, growing stronger. But I also really didn't feel very successful as a human. Right. You know. Well, I, I'm, I met a, a woman, uh, Kathy, who I'm married to now, who is a tremendous Christian, strong, lifelong Christian. And um, she had just come away from a relationship. She's divorced, where her, her ex, uh, who was a minister, was... Um, uh, took money from uh, you know I forget the word for it but you know when you take money you're not supposed to take from businesses and Laundered churches and stuff yeah yeah there's this particular term for that but embezzling embezzling or... that's it yeah. he he was an embezzler okay and uh, she she was kind of racked out because it ended up that she felt like he didn't care really about anything except spending lots of money yeah. on himself and he was a minister so she had this cynicism yeah. about the about the kind of mainstream religious clothing that we all have grown up with just as i did mm -hmm. and she was like well i'd love to meet somebody whose worldview is not sending that money <laughs> <laughs> lo and behold yeah. <laughs> so i i had actually written a part of this book uh while i was up in alaska and I gave this to her. It was on a, on a CD, you know, a doc, mm -hmm. a Word doc. And she read it in like two hours. And we got to know each other really quickly. And uh, I met her in February, and we married in July. Wow. How'd you meet her? Uh, uh, Bellevue First, uh, Bellevue, Bellevue Baptist Church. Okay, so you're going to Bellevue at that I time. was going to Bellevue, yeah, because they had a a um, very well-developed um, like a Sunday school system so that there were people that I could I could find a class that I could really relate to. Connect to. I and tried to go to Collierville First Baptist, and I was just in the First Baptist world. That's where I was baptized. Mm -hmm. And um, it just didn't fit me well at all. So then... So, uh, Bellevue was a little better, but then after we met and married, we moved to fellowship not long after that. What was the uh, impetus behind that? I mean, what motivated you guys to? It was mostly Kathy. Kathy was um, 
she saw the the kind of the the business of being a Baptist was is pretty big there. I mean, they spend four million dollars a year on their landscaping, you know. So it's like a big business, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, uh, she felt like it lacked authenticity for her because okay. of that. And I was like, well, I can understand what you're saying, but to me, it was like, well, I don't, I don't care. It's if I'm going to be worshiping God there or somewhere else, it doesn't matter to me. I'm fine. Yeah. And um, so I just went along with it because it seemed like a good, and I'm, I'm glad I did. Now it was a wise choice. We're coming up on an hour, but I think the. And I, I mean, I probably wouldn't say this about everybody. I feel like we really just scratched the surface, and oh yeah, uh, which makes me uh, think schematic. that people that are people that are listening to this would actually very much want to kind of dig into your book. So, uh, just walk me through real fast uh, in writing the book. You said you started in Alaska. Yeah, going back about and remembering all these things. I mean, what did yeah. that do for you? Oh, it was wonderful. Okay, was that really a therapeutic? Can well, I? yeah, it was hard. It was yeah. hard. And uh, there's kind of an X-rated version of this, and then there's an R-rated version, and then there's a PG-13 version, and this is the G version. <laughs> <laughs> so I, there's been a lot of editing. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I, I wanted to... I really felt uh, a powerful need to reach people like I believe myself to be for many years, which was someone who was kind of like, you know, from the Christian world, but clearly not willing to take in all the stuff that the Bible has about kind of the, you know, the tutti fruity magical stuff that ah, I don't think so. You know, yeah. we don't need any of that. Uh, yeah, it's it's good to be nice to your neighbor and to serve the community and stuff like that. Liberal values are all good, but, um, you know, that's not what what gets you through the night. That's hmm. that's not the the meaty part of life. Yeah, and um, finding the relationship with Christ that I found in my faith has transformed my life. I've never felt more unified, more complete. Hmm. Uh, I feel you know clearly I'm I'm sinner. I make all kinds of screw ups, but. I just feel happy about it now. Yeah. I don't. I don't feel like I'm being tormented by something I'm missing anymore. <laughs> Which is really incredible to think about because it came from that. Well, it came obviously through a, a process, but it really started out of that brokenness in the hospital. Yeah, where you're just like, I don't think I know anything. Yeah, and and that was one of the. I I don't think I could have come to Christ except through being a Buddhist monk. When I look back on it, that's a quote like, right there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> hey, if you want to, if if you want to, if you want to explore the universe, just commit fully to doing that with yeah. all your heart, and what 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 will happen is you will find that God will come to you. I mean, that's my takeaway. Yeah. And this book is written for people who are uh, either post or pre-Christian. Not really. I mean, certainly I encourage Christians to read it too because it's an interesting story. And it's my testimony. It's the story yeah. of my, you know, why I'm a Christian. It's, it's a but movie. I'd love, to, <laughs> I'd love to have people who are like college students or, uh, you know, people who have, who have uh, struggled with kind of the magical portion of Christianity and, and discarded it as not 
being worthy of them mm-hmm. and look at the world from a scientific perspective. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, those people are some of the best people that are in America. They're, they're great yeah. folks. And I would love to be able to show them that there's a path back to something that they've, a little baby that they threw out yeah. uh, with the bathwater. Right. And uh, I would love to be able to be an instrument in God's hands to bring those people to Christ. Oh, I think that's awesome. Where can people find this? Well, it's on Amazon. You can just go to Amazon. You can buy a hard copy. Or uh, you, it's it's an ebook as well. Okay. And if you buy an ebook, it's cheaper, and you get color pictures. Okay. So that's a there nice that's a nice thing. But if you if you're a kind of traditionalist, you want a hard copy. It's available. It's not in, available in hardcover, but so if you go uh, to Amazon, just type in "Way to Emmaus." Way to Emmaus, and uh, my my website's on here too, What's which that? is the Way to Emmaus because Way to Emmaus is a Christian bookstore in Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, okay. <laughs> so I just you just put the at the front there. So now that's that's my website, and I blog on that. And um, I'm very very inept with my understanding of how to deal with social media, but I am struggling <laughs> valiantly to try to figure this out. We all are. <laughs> so I would really like to get a a dialogue going. Yeah. You know, just like uh, you're you're thinking around these podcasts. Is I would love to be able to be a part of a community talking about these these issues at the interface between Christianity and modern culture. Yeah, which is where some really important battles are being fought. Right. Oh, now. absolutely. I think a lot so, of people would actually be interested in that as well. I mean, that's really I think what a lot of people are struggling with today. Yeah. You know, I, wrestling I with so the agree. modern postmodern worldview. Yeah. And we're we're going. Uh, I'm I'm teaching a growth group right now in my um, fellowship group. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, using David Platt's uh, counterculture as the foundational oh, yeah. kind of tool, and I'm I'm kind of like saying that I, I the the growth group is has been drawn from David Platt's rather than just kind of completely his because I'm yeah. I'm editing somewhat. But he's well, David Platt's Bible-based. book will he'll yeah. it'll jolt you. Yeah, anything he writes will. <laughs> the, the man is inspired. Yeah. I, I love him. I think he's great and. Uh, you know, he's probably a little bit to the right of me politically, but I think the way that he looks at the biblical roots to these concepts is right on. Yeah. And so we can use those. I can use those same roots. And as I as I said before, contextually understanding the ultimate instructions mm-hmm. that we've gotten for this recipe we call life. Yeah. Is loving, serving your neighbor, serving the poor, loving everyone and being selfless about it. And that's really ultimately what Buddhism is about. The good part of Buddhism yeah. is about being selfless, dying to the self. Yeah. And uh, that's what Christ asks us to do as well. So mm-hmm. really no big change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so if uh, people can go to Amazon and find you, Way to Emmaus, Mark Van Light, and they can also probably just find you through Google or find your blog, and yeah. uh, your blog being The Way to Emmaus. Dot yes. com. Yes. Awesome. Well, Mark, man, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all well, this. I just I mean, it's a delight to me to be able to talk about this. It's pre- it's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I've never uh, I got to be honest. I've never had a conversation with somebody who's been a full blown Buddhist monk. 
you know, like deep into that world. So it's a, uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating conversation. Well, and if you're at all attracted to that kind of worldview or, or even just that lifestyle, there's lots in the book about it, about what it's like to live in the monastery in Thailand and, and, uh, you know, what a day looks like and that kind of stuff. So that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Mark.